Well, as you know, there, there are many well-known stories in the Old Testament, but there are perhaps few as well-known as the one we're going to consider this morning. Uh, the shepherd boy David and his defeat of the giant Goliath. David, as we just read and as we know from last week, is a young man. Goliath is a mighty warrior, and no one in all of Israel is brave enough to respond to the warrior's taunts, except David. He's not even a soldier in the battle to begin with when he steps forward to take on Goliath. He defies Goliath's defiance, and he picks up five stones with a sling, and he begins to run toward the Philistine warrior. And we read in verse 49, David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Now, this familiar story to us can be so familiar that we can be tempted to kind of tune it out and say, well, I've heard this before. I've been, if you've grown up in church, you've no doubt heard this from your childhood. But how do we understand this chapter? How does it function in the book of Samuel as a whole? Is this chapter primarily about David? Is it primarily about Jesus? Or is it primarily about us? Or Does it include something about David, something about Christ, and something for us? Well, the answer to that question would be yes. All of the above. Before I get to the outline, which is going to be fairly simple this morning, we're going to look at the fact that David is David, Christ is David, and you are David. I want to provide something of a theological justification for that approach. You've probably noticed as I've walked through the book of Samuel or other Old Testament narratives that what I tend to do is basically the same thing in every sermon. I try to preach a Christian sermon from the Old Testament. Now, in order to preach a Christian sermon from the Old Testament, you have to do a couple of things. First of all, you have to understand what it meant to them then. You have to start there. You have to start with what did this mean for the people of Israel in the time of David and Goliath and all that transpired. We don't just jump from David to us, and we don't just jump from David to Christ. We start with David as David. But then we need to understand how this particular event in the Old Testament connects to Christ, because Christ taught us that all the scriptures testify of him. They all speak of who he is and what he did. He's told us that in Luke 24. He tells the Pharisees that in John chapter 5. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. But then, having connected it to Christ, we don't just stop there. We need to connect the text to our lives here and now. And if we miss any of those steps, we run the risk of violating a correct interpretation of Scripture. For instance, if we run from the text immediately to Christ without first dealing with the original audience, then we can run the risk of allegorizing or spiritualizing the passage as though it had nothing to do with anything in legitimate history. Or if we run from the original audience and they're immediately to us here and now skipping Christ altogether, well, we're just going to turn the sermon into another form of moralism and legalism. Be like David. Kill your giants. So we must connect the text to them there and then, then to Christ, and then to us here and now. 
And so that's what I'm going to try to do this week and next week and the following week. And every week we happen to be in Scripture because we start with the original audience. We find Christ and how he fulfills or is pointed to in that passage. And then we apply it to ourselves. So that's the outline this morning. Christ is David. Or sorry, David is David. Christ is David. And you are David. Let's start first of all where we should. The original audience, the original text with our first point. First of all, David is David. Now, the accounts about David in First and Second Samuel, we have to remember these are historical accounts. I sometimes refer to it as the story of David and Goliath, but I don't mean by using the word story that it's anything less than fact. This is nonfiction we're talking about here, even though it is a nonfiction story. The accounts about David are historical accounts about Israel's first king to come from the tribe of Judah. We learn several things about David, the historical David, in this chapter alone. For instance, we're reminded, as we were last week, that David is the son of Jesse. He's the youngest of eight boys. He's born in Bethlehem. He works for the family as a shepherd. He's anointed by Samuel. We're told that he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. We're told in verse 18 of chapter 16 that he was skillful in playing. He was a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a, and a man of good presence, and the Lord was with him. All those are historical facts about the person, David. So when we read about David killing Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, we're reading about the victory of a historical figure and a historical event. So what do we learn about this event? Well, let me survey it for us this morning. As we read, it begins with a face-off between Israel and their arch-nemesis, the Philistines. They're positioned on opposite hills. The Philistines have a champion who stands about nine feet tall. He's a giant named Goliath from the town of Gath. And each day, Goliath issues a challenge across the valley. He invites Israel to nominate a challenger to his championship who will fight on behalf of their respective armies, and the loser's nation will be subject to the victors. The result? A dismayed and terrified army of Israel that won't budge an inch. Then we meet David in verse 12. Now we're told that David splits his time between serving in Saul's court, as we saw last week. Saul chose him to play, to be in his court, to play the lyre, And things like that when he was particularly distressed. But he divides his time between his time in Saul's court and his time tending his father's sheep in Bethlehem. And his father Jesse sends him with provisions to his older three brothers who were fighting in the Israel's army for King Saul. And as the armies draw up opposite of each other, David leaves his provisions with the keeper of the baggage and he runs immediately to the ranks. This is a stark contrast, you'll remember, from Saul, who hid among the baggage in chapter 10. While there, David overhears Goliath's challenge. And while at first he's dismissed, even by his own brothers, no less, David persists, and the news eventually reaches Saul that David is willing to challenge him, and so he sends for David to come to him. And Saul is understandably skeptical about David's abilities to take on this giant. And so David points out that he's been fighting animals his whole life. Fought lions and bears, kept them away from sheep. He has plenty of victories over wild animals. He has plenty of heads on his wall, so to speak. He's getting ready to add another one. 
Saul eventually concedes and even offers him his own armor, which David declines because it doesn't fit properly. And with a sling and five stones, the very same thing he would have used to ward off the wild animals against the sheep that he was tending, he approaches Goliath. And as we read in verse 41, we read the following. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and all, that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And so God does. And so Goliath dies with one shot. Now the chapter concludes with a question from Saul who asks Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner says, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. Now a natural question should emerge in your mind if you're thinking about this. Why does Saul, whom David has been serving until this point, have to ask the question, when David has already been in his own household. Yet, specifically look at what Saul says here. What Saul asks is not who David is. He knows who David is. What what Saul asks is whose son David is. Now, why does he ask that? Well, he asks that because in verse 25 of this chapter, Saul says that whoever is able to slay the giant Goliath will receive his daughter and he will exempt that man and his family from tax obligations. So it's not that Saul does not recognize David. He's trying to fulfill his commitment to reward the victor as promised. And he doesn't know necessarily the origins of David's family. He knows that David has been in his court, has been serving him in various ways. But this text is not to be taken that Saul has somehow forgotten who David is altogether. And there's no suggestion that when David first volunteers for his service that Saul doesn't recognize him. So why is this here? Why this great victory for David so early on in the story? Well, remember one thing. It is following the pattern that has already been established by King Saul. And the writer, Samuel, is trying to show that David is greater than Saul. Remember what God said, or what Samuel said to Saul? Your throne will be taken from you and replaced with someone who is better than you. How is David better than Saul? Well, he's following the pattern that Saul set up in the first kingship. Remember in chapters 9 and 10, Saul was anointed. Well, David is anointed. Remember how Saul was endowed with the Spirit? Well, David is endowed with the Spirit, but in a much greater way. It doesn't, the Spirit doesn't depart from David. 
as it did from Saul. Saul, remember when he was reluctant to engage in battles in various ways and was mishandling his way he was leading the armies and things, was largely despised by the people at times. Well, David is despised by his brothers. He's despised by Goliath. He's despised by Saul himself even here. And yet, after all of that, after Saul was anointed, after Saul was endowed with the Spirit, after Saul was despised by the people, what did he eventually do? Well, he performed a great military feat in chapter 11. And so that's why we see here in chapter 17, following David's anointing by Samuel, following David's endowment with the Spirit, following David being despised, he too engages in a great military victory, only not with the armies of Israel with him, by himself defeating the giant of the Philistines. So that's why this story is here. It is to give us an insight that David is the greater king than Saul was. Secondly, that's David as David. That's something of the historical context of this passage there and then. Now let's take it to Christ. Christ is David. The life of David, as I trust you know, is part of a larger matrix in the Old Testament of types and patterns and shadows that ultimately point to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, there is a Christological, a Christ-centered significance to David's defeat of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Now, this, this significance doesn't, dis, doesn't diminish the historicity of the account for the people of Israel or for David himself. But the historicity of the story actually grounds what I could call the Christocentricity of the story. As we saw last week, David is a type of Christ, right? David was born in Bethlehem, as Christ would be. He's from the tribe of Judah, as Christ would be. He's from the family of David, as Christ would, or from the family of Jesse, as Christ would be. He's a shepherd, as Christ would be. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam was called to do what? Exercise dominion over the beasts. But he was defeated by a serpent. Now, interestingly, In chapter 17, verses 4 to 7, we are given a description of Goliath's armor. We're told in verse 5 and 6 that he wears a coat of mail. Actually, the literal Hebrew there is he's wearing scales. Goliath is presented to us in serpent form. He's presented to us as a snake. In 1 Samuel 11, remember, Saul faced Nahash the Ammonite whose name literally means snake in battle. After being anointed as king, but before being proclaimed as king, Saul had to fight a snake. Well, David's got to fight a snake too. And David triumphs. Remember, God had said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And David killed the snake with a head wound. When David killed Goliath, the stone hit Goliath's forehead. And it not only hit his forehead, it sank in. Now since David represents the seed of the woman and Goliath represents the seed of the serpent, David's victory over Goliath is the echo of the promise of Genesis 3.15 that a descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head. 
Now David's head-crushing victory only foreshadows the greater head-crushing victory to come by Christ himself. And we rejoice in that. We rejoice that Christ has defeated the giants of sin and the devil and death and hell. And as we saw last week, immediately following Christ's anointing by the Spirit at his baptism, he was thrust into the wilderness to do battle with whom? Snake. And there is David and Goliath revised. This is Adam in the garden Revisited. And there Jesus, the true and better Adam, the true and better David, as we just sang, faced down the snake and returned in power to the spirit, of the Spirit to proclaim the good news of freedom for all the people, just as Christ did after he left the wilderness and defeated Satan. So down in the valley of 1 Samuel 17 stands our Jesus, entering the battle armed only with a beam of wood trapped, strapped to his back. We see him face the snake who has tyrannized our lives as he hangs on the cross. We see him saying to the devil, as it were, what David himself said, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, with lies and threats and accusations, with sin and law and death, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty whom you have defied. This day you may strike my heel, but the Lord will hand you over to me and I will crush your head. And three days later, our Christ burst forth from the tomb, proof that the snake's head had been crushed. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. On the cross, Jesus became our mighty champion, who stood between us and judgment. The cross absorbs the wrath of God and the just accusations of the devil that bore down on us with violent force, threatening to destroy us altogether. But Jesus has represented us and stood in our place as our greater David. And he bore the full force of the fury of the wrath of God and the accusations of the devil and interposed his precious blood on our behalf. Hallelujah. We are the people of Israel in this story, dear ones facing a terrifying enemy that we can't defeat, needing a great champion who's anointed by God to fight our battle and gain the victory that we could never achieve on our own. And we have such a champion. Goliath was called a champion here. Literally, that, that phrase means the man of the space between. The man who's willing to step in the gap and take the hit. The substitute. Goliath is, who battles on behalf of the Philistines. Well, Christ is our greater champion. He's our greater man of the space between. He's our greater substitute. He's our greater intercessor who stood up and battled the giants on our behalf. He did what we could not and cannot do. That's also what David did, standing between his people and their enemies and striking the decisive blow. And Christ did it with one shot. It is finished. David is David. Christ is David. But we're not done yet. You're David. Now bear with me in this third point as I explain why you are David. This third assertion doesn't deny the historicity of David that we've already talked about. And it doesn't deny the ultimate fulfillment of David's life and his victory over Goliath in the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in light of this historical account of David and the fulfillment in Christ, we are to find ourselves in this story as well. To be clear, 
the story of David is not a mere moral lesson for us as disciples. The Bible is not fundamentally about us, and we have to avoid reading ourselves into Bible stories like we're the hero. I'm David, and the Goliath is my difficult marriage or my boss at work. We need to grab the stones of faith and sling them at our giants one at a time and watch them fall one by one. Use the armor that's authentic to you. And at the end of the day, you're going to defeat your giants because you have greatness within you and you're going to walk into the house at the end of the day with a severed head. That's how this passage often gets preached. David's the hero. You can be the hero. You're endowed by the Spirit. And they skip Jesus altogether. We don't need to do that. Now to be clear, what I just said To see that as absolutely wrong is absolutely right. I agree with what Gavin Ortland says when he says, quote, attempts to make David merely an example of faith runs the risk of sending the message that given enough faith, we can save ourselves, end quote. And if we take that lesson away from this chapter, we are of all people most to be pitied. However, it's also important that we not overcorrect. We are not to see ourselves as the head crusher. But this chapter is relevant for us as disciples of Jesus because we are in union with Jesus, the head crusher. And while we can err by simply moralizing Old Testament stories, we must not overcorrect by ignoring the moral implications that such stories have for our Christian lives. We're told in Hebrews 11 to imitate the faith of the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. And in that very chapter, verse 32, David is part of that cloud. David, along with all Old Testament saints and Old Testament sinners for that matter, serve, according to 1 Corinthians 10-11, as examples for us. Whether their example be negative or positive. And in this case, it's very positive. Now, what is the main lesson that this chapter would teach for us in Christ? Well, I think the main lesson that David teaches us and that Christ would teach us to draw from this chapter is that when facing our temptations to fear, we can resist the snake and respond in faith in our great champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we get there, and I talk a little bit more about that, let's look at a few models of responding in fear in this chapter. The anti-heroes, so to speak. Because as you read the Bible, you should identify with the anti-heroes. Because we are the anti-heroes in the Bible. We are those who are in need of rescue. For instance, if truth be told, we're often like David's older brother, Eliab. Look at verse 26, where Eliab, when David comes into the camp, and he's there to deliver supplies to the brothers on behalf of, of their father, Jesse, Eliab says in verse 28, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men about going to fight Goliath. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Look at verse 26, back up a couple of verses. And David's said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And then come down to verse 29 again. Now David said to his brother Eliab, 
What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in, him the, spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. How are we like Eliab? Well, rather than seeing reasons for hope, we cave into cynicism, don't we? What does Eliab do here? Why have you come down, David? You can't do anything about this. And by the way, he, he casts his you know, question as so noble. You've, you've defected from your duty to come here. Who's watching the sheep now? Well, Dad sent me here. But again, David responds as a younger brother probably would, who's been taunted by his older brothers his whole life, seven of them, especially the oldest. He says, what have I done now? <laughs> Can't you identify younger brothers, younger sisters in here? Can you not identify with it? What have I done now? What have I done now? Was it not but a word? I just, I just said something. I haven't even done anything. But Eliab's comments dripped with contempt for David. In this way, Eliab's like Goliath. Goliath will express contempt for David in verses 42 to 44, much like his older brother did. And Eliab's already doing it here. We often find reasons to not trust our Christ to deliver us. And so we find reasons why he isn't up to the task and won't come through for us. And you know what that does? That makes us a whole lot more like Goliath than it does like Jesus. Or David, for that matter. So we can respond sometimes like Eliab, or we can respond like Goliath. We can behave like him as well. Walking around with swagger and arrogance and self-confidence and pride. Perhaps we just intimidate the people around us into submission and squash those who would try to test the resolve of our will. We blaspheme God and use the weapons of outward strength to confront our enemies. Or we can behave like Saul. He marginalizes David as a silly boy. Look at verse 33. Saul says to David, Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. Then he says in verses 38 and 39, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Even after Saul concedes to David, he attempts to do what? Clothe him with his own armor. Saul's offer reveals something of his strategy for fighting life's battles, doesn't it? Saul relies on physical things that he can see and touch, believing only what he's experienced and believing only those who are genuinely equipped to be warriors have any chance of winning. He lives by sight. He doesn't live by faith. But David goes out, dressed as a shepherd, just as he came in, with a sling and with a stick, which is the same thing he would use to fight off other beasts in order to stone the one who was committing blasphemy. We can be like Saul too, can't we? Trusting in the things that we can see and the things that we can accomplish in our own strength. Or we can be like Israel. How did Israel respond? Well, note two verses here. Verse 11, first of all. Chapter 17, verse 11, we read, When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
Notice verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. This is not the first time Israel has been terrified in the face of giants, is it? Their track record hasn't been so great. Remember when God rescued Israel from slavery and led them to the edge of the promised land of Canaan? In Numbers 13, Moses sends out 12 spies to explore the land. And they come back with this glowing report. It's flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of the 12 spies concluded, there's no way we can go in that land. There are people there who are giants. They're larger and stronger than we are. We saw the Nephilim there. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. And what happened? Well, there were two spies that gave a contrary assessment. Those two spies were Caleb and Joshua. And they responded, the Lord will give it to us. Let's trust him and go in. But the people as a whole failed to trust God, feared the giants, and refused to enter and take the land. And what was the result? Well, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, the whole generation that came out of Egypt would later die in the wilderness, wandering around in the desert for 40 years. The lesson is clear. Trust God and experience the victory that he promised or cave into fear and wander aimlessly through your life. The choice is yours. Risk or rust. Now, back in 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines have already started to move into Israel's territory. We're told that they're already in Judah in verse 1. They are, in effect, undoing the conquest that was previously achieved by Joshua. It's as if Israel's headed back to the wilderness. They're being pushed back to the place of testing with a giant staring them down. Israel had feared to enter the land because of the giants, and as a result, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Now what's happened? What's the giant been doing? How long has he been taunting Israel? Verse 16 tells us, 40 days. That's not accidental, friends. This is Israel being tested again in the face of giants. Israel's getting the opportunity again. For 40 days, Goliath provokes them, and again they fail the test because of fear. Now, what do all these have in common? An inability whether it be Eliab, Saul, Israel, Goliath. All these have in common the inability to obey chapter 16, verse 7. Caving in to the natural tendency of men to look at the outward appearance and not to look at the internal reality. We are not by nature like David, dear ones, who bravely conquered the enemy We are often like the fearful people, Eliab, Israel, Saul, and yes, even Goliath, who desperately need a champion to defeat an enemy we are incapable of facing. And we are incapable of facing that enemy and defeating that enemy, but Christ is and Christ has. And therefore, we can respond in faith. David shows up and he slays the giant, and then David cuts off the head of the giant And the Philistines turn and run. And what happens to the people of Israel then? Look at verse 52 and 53. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. 
the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. Dear ones, the Philistines turned and ran. The people of Israel stood up, shouted, and entered the battle. All because of what their champion did in defeating their giants. And dear ones, not only are we meant to be recipients of the great substitutionary work of Christ, our man between, our champion, we are also meant to join in this fight. We share the promise that God himself will soon crush Satan under our feet. Romans 16.20 Note Paul's careful grammar. God himself is the one crushing Satan, but he happens to be using our feet to do it. So we are involved in the fight, but any victories in the fight are not merely our work, but God's work through us. So dear ones in Christ, we are in a greater position than Israel ever was. Just as Goliath was defeated by David, setting the people free from the terror of slavery to the Philistines, so Satan has been conquered by Jesus, our anointed champion and king, and he has set us free. Because our greater David has defeated enemies bigger than Goliath, like sin and death, with a single shot on the cross, we can surge forward with a shout and plunder the enemy's camp. He's been cast down. He's been bound. We are victors because of Christ's victory. A victory which grounds our perseverance and leads to our own obedience. Listen, friends, it's time to surge down the hillside and proclaim Christ's victory. To call those who once belonged to to Satan to freedom in Christ through the gospel. We, like Israel, can follow Jesus and participate in his victory. After the death of Goliath, Israel still had work to do. They still had a job to do. There is a battle to fight. But they and we fight in full confidence, knowing that the decisive action has already been accomplished. And that makes all the difference to get us up off the ground, out of our tents, and on the field. If you are guaranteed victory, it changes the way you fight. And if you're not engaged in warfare with your own sin, it's because you don't believe it's been defeated. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you believe that, it changes the fight. You are not a slave. You are not bound in the shackles of disobedience. You have been set free by your champion. Act like it. Don't be timid in the face of the world's opposition. Oh, it's getting so dark out there. Not any darker than the tomb was. And Christ left it with a great blazing ray of light. You don't need to be afraid. Don't cower in fear as the world does. And run to your politicians to save you. No, we will stand with our mighty champion Christ. We will wage war, not with the weapons of warfare of the world, but taking every thought captive to make it obedient Christ, speaking truth in the, in the public square to our neighbors. Whether they have influence or not, we tell them the truth. We call balls and strikes, whether they're red or blue. Truth is truth, and we must be people of the truth. And fearless, no matter what boxes the world wants to point, put us in. Put me in the Jesus box. I don't care what other box you put me in. He doesn't fit in the boxes that the world tries to create to put us in. 
And so we fight, but we fight in surety that the warfare has been waged, that the victory has been accomplished. We put on the whole armor of God to stand against the devil's schemes. We fight against cosmic powers in this present darkness. We do it in the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. We're called to put sin to death, but we do this because of Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's why we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Because Jesus took on our biggest giants. We can face all the lesser ones in the strength that he supplies. God is great. You don't have to be in control. God is glorious. You don't have to be afraid of others. God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere. God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. What grieves God more than taunting giants is his fearful people hiding in their tents. Instead of listening to unbelieving believers who won't take their eyes off the size of the giant, let's take from God at his, and take him at his word and think about his love and power toward us. What is that love and power? John 1, 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Right now, our risen Lord above is a brimful of grace overflowing for us as his people. Yes, you, high maintenance sinner, just like me. He lights up when he sees you coming back to him, desiring to have his fresh empowerment and forgiveness and and confessing your need for the 19th time this hour. The risen Jesus isn't tired and he isn't tired of you. Face life with all you have in Christ. Never face life from the standpoint of all the problems and all the needs and all the difficulties. Always begin with your standing in the united fellowship you have with the great champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have rivers of living water. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Dear ones, the decisive victory has been won for us on the cross and the empty tomb. The snake is bound. Our job is to go and plunder his camp. We don't have to fight in Saul's armor. We have Christ. So get rid of the gimmicks. Get rid of the strategies. Get rid of the trusting in the arm of the flesh. We've got the gospel. We've got prayer. Let's use them. We fight our sin in the power of the Spirit, and we proclaim Christ's victory in the gospel, calling our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers to submit to the liberating reign of Jesus Christ. We can fight bravely because the victory has already been won. Don't stand on the sidelines, dismayed and terrified, sentenced to a life of aimless wilderness wandering for the remainder of your days. Look at the battlefield. See the victorious champion stand strong with the head in his hand and get in the game. Lift up a shout. Our champion has conquered and we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. So when we study 1 Samuel 17 in this way, I hope you see David is David. Christ is David. But in our great champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to imitate David's faith. We are called to step forward in the face of life's challenges. Sin, the devil, circumstances, inward struggles, outward struggles, and we are to bring those to our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ.
relying upon him for grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, which will never run out for high-maintenance sinners like all of us because he's always brimming and he lights up when he sees us in union with Christ living as David would live. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for our mighty champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David, who slew our giants and left them at his feet, defeating sin and death and the devil and rising triumphantly from the grave. We thank you that through his death we have been given eternal life and that we are set free from all the power of the devil, that we are set free from the chains of the power of sin. While we are not yet free from its presence, we are free of its penalty. We are free of its power. And so we pray that you would help us to live as victors in Christ. Not walking around claiming victory for things Christ never promised, but claiming victory over the things that Christ has promised. And living in confidence that the same spirit that empowered King David, the same spirit that empowered the Lord Jesus Christ according to his humanity, and the same spirit that empowers us is able to make us more than conquerors through him who loved us. May we never cower. May we never cave. Forgive us for all the times where we are like Saul, where we are like Eliab, where we are like Israel. Coming up with manifold reasons for why we can't trust you. And here stands our champion, the Lord Jesus, at the mouth of the tomb, saying, is this good enough for you? Can you trust me now? Here's our Lord Jesus ascended to the right hand of Father, saying, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, for I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. What great promises we have. What a great champion you are. We pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.